to the reign of Hezekiah, and we'll be with Hezekiah, Lord willing, for a couple weeks. And today we are going to consider uh, chapter 18, verses 7 through verse 37, to the end of the chapter. But the historian devotes a lot of time and ink to Hezekiah comparatively, and so we want to give him our are due as well. Hezekiah is a great, he's an important king, and you need to know him, boys and girls. Um, He is a reforming king. He uh, did a lot of great things. You might also, for those of you who are um, looking for uh, extra credit, um, (laughs) with me, not with God, um, might want to also look at what the chronicler says in Second Chronicles around chapter 28 with Hezekiah too, because it's very interesting to see that there are def- different emphases um, between the, the two accounts. It's not, it's not exactly a repetition. Um, let's pray together, then we're going to read. Let's pray. Father, we need your help to understand the word. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who gave understanding to the disciples And now has been poured out so that we too might understand the things that are written for our instruction. And so we pray that as we read, we might be believing, trusting, and Lord, preparing to do the very word that is written here. Pray, Lord, that we give due reverence to you as we listen closely to the scriptures. Keep us, Lord, from extraneous thoughts. Help us not to be busy about many things in our mind but rather, Lord, to focus like Mary and sit at the feet of Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 2 Kings chapter 18, beginning at verse 7. And the Lord was with him. Wherever he went, he prospered. And he rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. He defeated the Philistines as far as Gaza, and its territory from the watchtower to fortified city. Now in the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hoshea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against Samaria and besieged it. At the end of three years, they captured it in the sixth year of Hezekiah which was the ninth year of Hoshea, king of Israel. Samaria was captured. Then the king of Assyria carried Israel away into exile to Assyria. And he put them in Hala and on the Habor and the river Gozan and in the cities of the Medes, because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed his covenant even all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded, that they would neither listen nor do it, which I think is interesting given what Pastor Thoman said last Sunday to us about in his first sermon, listening, and in the second sermon, doing. They neither listened nor do it. Verse 13, now in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah, and seized them. Then Hezekiah, king of Judah, 
sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I have done wrong. Withdraw from me whatever you impose on me I will bear. So the king of Assyria required of Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. Hezekiah gave him all the silver which was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. At that time, Hezekiah cut off the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the doorposts which Hezekiah king of Judah had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. Then the king of Assyria sent Tartan and Rabsaris and Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah with a large army to Jerusalem. So they went up and came to Jerusalem. And when they went up, they came and stood by the conduit of the upper pool, which is on the highway of the fuller's field. When they called to the king, Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came out to them. Then Rabshakeh said to them, Say now to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, What is this confidence that you have? You say, but they are only empty words, I have counsel and strength for the war. Now on whom do you rely that you have rebelled against me? Now behold, you rely on the staff of this crushed reed, even on Egypt, on which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who rely on him. But if you say to me, quote, we will trust, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and has said to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem. Now therefore come, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse one official of the least of my master's servants and rely on Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Have I now come up without the Lord's approval against this place to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and Shebna, and Joah, said to Rabshakeh, Speak now to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it, and do not speak with us in Judean, in the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But Rabshakeh said to them, Has my master sent me only to your master and to to you to speak these words, and not to the men who sit on the wall doomed to eat their own dung and drink their own urine with you? Then Rabshakeh 
stood and cried with a loud voice in Judea and saying, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you from my hand. Nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us, and this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me, and come out to me, and eat each of his vine, and each of his fig tree, and drink each of the waters of his own cistern, until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey, that you may live and not die. But do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any one of the gods of the nations delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim, Hena, and Eva? Have they delivered Samaria from my hand? Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their land from my hand? That the Lord should deliver Jerusalem from my hand. But the people were silent and answered him not a word. For the king's commandment was do not answer him. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna the scribe, and Joah the son of Asaph the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of Rabshakeh. Amen. Well, you'll remember a couple weeks ago we saw that Hezekiah had become king. He became king at a very young age. This should encourage those of you who are young that the Lord uh, many times will use young people. We know that Timothy was young. We know that the Apostle Paul told Timothy, don't let the older folks uh, despise your youthfulness. Hezekiah had a tremendous responsibility on his shoulders at an early age, at the age of 25. I think we should think about that. What if we elected a president of the United States who was 25 years old? That would sober us up, wouldn't it? <laughs> There's a reason that our Constitution forbids it. But here is young Hezekiah. And what does the Bible say about him? The Bible says in 2 Kings 18, verse 3, that he does what is right in the sight of the Lord. Hezekiah does trust in the Lord. He puts his faith in God, and, and um, he brings about all kinds of reformation, the destruction of idolatry, we're told in verse 4. He brings down the high places. You remember the high places were those places that were created by the inhabitants of Judah, that were often on hilltops and mountains. Often they were associated with the fertility gods of other, uh, other religions. And yet th those were places where they said that it was okay to worship the Lord. And, and you'll remember that this was a real stumbling stone for the people of God. Even some of the best of kings couldn't take down the high places. Well, Hezekiah got the job done. He did take down the high places, and he should be commended for that. He cut down the Asherah. Those were like uh, these long, high totem poles, if you will, that were 
again, often associated with fertility, and he cut them down. He also destroyed even the bronze serpent, even uh, something that God had commanded to be created at the time that Israel was in the wilderness and they were stung by the, the serpents because of their disobedience to God. God told Moses, make this bronze serpent and anybody who looks at it would be healed. But the trouble is, as the years and centuries went by, the people of God began to use the bronze serpent as uh, an idol and it became displeasing to the Lord. We are told that Hezekiah also trusted in the Lord and that he kept his commandments. Now in this chapter, I want to point out three things for us by way of outline. The first is coming from verses 7 through 12, and that is this. In verses 7 through 12, we see more about the reformations of Hezekiah, but we also see the ominous rise of Assyria the reformations of Hezekiah, and the rise of Assyria. That's in verses 7 through 12. The second main point comes from verses 13 to 18. And we see that though Hezekiah is a great and godly king, he yet nevertheless temporarily has a faltering faith. Hezekiah's faltering faith. He has a moment of weakness, but does thankfully recover from it. And then finally, in verses 19 to 37, we see Assyria's foolish confidence in its own power and might. In verses 19 to 37, Assyria's foolish confidence in its own power and its might. So let's look together at our text this morning here. If you go back to verse 7 here and all the way through verse 12 is where I'm really getting our first point here. There are two interesting dynamics taking place historically at this moment that the historian is putting before us. Number one is that there are reformations taking place under the reign of Hezekiah, and this is a good thing. But that God's providence also is allowing for the rise of a foreign imperial power. The Assyrians, boys and girls, were the strongest and mightiest nation in its day. The Bible says that God elevates nations and he casts them down. And at this particular time in history, God was raising up Assyria. Now, you have to remember that the Lord is in control of every event in human history, back then and today. So the very things that we read about in the news or we watch on the news, remember that these things are under the control of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ today. That is significant because what we see here, I think, is instructive to help us as Christians today. Namely, that as God is doing great and wonderful things among the people of God in the Judean uh, kingdom, he is also, though, handing over his disobedient people in the ten northern tribes to the Assyrians. And he is raising up sovereignly the Assyrians to discipline his people. You can read about this, for example, in Isaiah chapter 10. Isaiah actually comments on this dynamic where he compares the use of a foreign empire as a spanking stick. And he uses the Assyrians and later the Babylonians 
as a spanking stick against his own people, that his people would repent and believe and, and reform their ways. But then, after God uses these foreign empires uh, as a tool in his hands for the correction of his people, he holds those foreign empires accountable for what they did because they did it not for the glory of God, but because they were sinful and self-centered and bloodthirsty, and they were seeking their own ways and devices here. And so God will hold them accountable and kind of, if you will, take that rod of discipline and break it over his knee. God will take the Assyrians eventually and break them over his knee. He'll actually use the Babylonians to break the Assyrians. And then after he's done with the Babylonians and used them for his purposes, he's going to take the Babylonians and break them over his knee. And he's going to use the Medes and the Persians to do that. And then he's going to take the Medes and the Persians and he's going to break them over his knee. And he's going to use the Greeks to do that. There's a man called Alexander the Great. You might have heard of him. He's going to come and he's going to deal with the Medes and the Persians in his day. But Alexander the Great's life, and you can read about this in the book of Daniel, Alexander's uh, the great's life is going to be cut short and the kingdom will be divided quickly into four parts. And then after that, God will bring about maybe even the greatest of empires in biblical history, the Roman Empire. And it will be in the midst of the Roman Empire that uh, God gives us that vision through Daniel where the rock that is not cut by human hands shall come and strike in the days of the Roman Empire, strike at the feet of the statue of Nebuchadnezzar that Nebuchadnezzar saw, the one that was mixed with clay and iron. And, and from that will come a great mountain, speaking of the kingdom of God, that will fill the whole earth. Um, and, and that the Lord is sovereign over these things. And so as we see good things happening in the visible church in Jerusalem, now, granted, this was a top-down reformation, and top-down reformations usually are not as effective as bottom-up reformations. This is a top-down reformation. What do I mean by that? This is a reformation brought about by Hezekiah, and Hezekiah's leading this reformation, and he's bringing it about. And that commentators seem to think that while Hezekiah is doing what's right, getting rid of the high places, he's reopening the temple. He is reinstituting the Passover. You have to read about that in Chronicles. It's not in this chapter, but Hezekiah renews the Passover, which points us to Christ, who is your, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. While he's doing all these things, uh, great things, he, he is also raising up the Assyrians at the same time. And this is a dark cloud on the horizon. Now, I say all that because we need to realize history is complicated. And... There are many gears and cogs in the, in the wheels of history. And God knows all the particular parts. And he knows all the motivations for all those particular parts. And he's using them all for his own grand purpose. And we have to remember that God's ways are far above our own. And so that even while good things are happening in the church, in the visible church, Hezekiah is doing great reformations, Nevertheless, there is also an ominous cloud coming upon the people of God. Jonathan Edwards believed <coughs> excuse me, that this was actually a pattern 
in the church history that whenever God brings revival, he often brings judgments following those revivals. So as we pray for revival, and I think we should pray for revival and reformation, keep in mind that on the heels of revival may come the great uh, and arduous days uh, on the heels of that revival. Some, some uh, historians believe that Christian historians, they, they look at, you know, why did God bring all these revivals in the, in the late 1850s? You have the New York revival in 1859, and even once the Civil War got started, you have all these camp revivals. You can read about it in a book called Christ in the Camp that speak about the revivals that took place in the, in the armies. Well, in, in one way you can see, because God was about to bring a judgment on this country where 600,000 souls were going to be taken. And what a mercy it was that so many people were ushered into the kingdom of God a few years prior through these awakenings and revivals. We know that in the 1740s we had great awakenings up and down the 13 colonies. Well, in, in many ways that may have helped prepare us as a people for the trials that were coming. Uh, just a, a mere less than 30 years later when we had that great struggle with our mother country, England, and, and the hardships that followed it. So God often works uh, dynamically, um, and he, he works in complicated ways. And so it should cause us to be careful when we interpret providence, uh, to know that this is what God is doing in uh, a particular history or situation. God is probably doing a million things. Uh, if, if we know but one or two of them, that's great. <laughs> but God is doing a, a, a millions of things. His ways are far above our own. But what I want you to sense from these opening verses here of this uh, chapter is the tension. That you have Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, and he's doing what? He's capturing Samaria in a three-year siege. And we are told why that happened. We are told that it was because of their disobedience that God brought this judgment upon the ten northern tribes. Now, for those of you who may be new uh, here and uh, to this series, remember that there are two main kingdoms. There's the northern kingdom of the ten tribes of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah and Benjamin in the south. The northern kingdom has gone the way of apostasy faster and farther than the southern tribes. And for that reason, God has raised up the Assyrians to bring judgment on these ten northern tribes. What we are looking at here is the reign of Hezekiah, who is a southern king, a Judean king. He lives in Jerusalem. He reigns in Jerusalem. And he is seeing what goes on in the north. Now that may have spurred on his desire for reformation. Because he sees that the, the false idolatry that is going on in the north, has, that has taken hold of Bethel and uh, Samaria, the capital cities, um, he does not want that brought on himself here. So Hezekiah is faithful. He's obedient to God's law. He's a reformer. The Bible says that God gave him military success, and yet at the same time, Assyria is taking over the ten northern tribes. And now what has happened? The way has been paved for the invasion of Jerusalem itself and Judah itself. 
You see, there was a buffer. Prior to this, there was a buffer. Israel was a buffer between Jerusalem and Assyria. Now there's no buffer. It'd be like if our enemies invaded and took over Canada. We always had Canada there, friendly neighbors. Can't get better neighbors in Canada, right? It's the most peaceful border in the history of mankind between Canada and the United States. Did you know that? The most peaceful border in the world. Now imagine our adversaries took over Canada. Now they're on your border. Now you, you begin to feel the seriousness uh, of the situation. Hezekiah, though, was courageous. He, he was faithful, but his uh, faith does falter here. Now we do need to remember that <clears throat> Satan is involved in this. Even though we're reading about real history, we also have to keep in mind that we're reading about spiritual things as well. And though he is not mentioned by name, we have to keep in mind the serpent of old, don't we? Who is always trying to do what? Destroy the promise of the kingdom of Christ. If Christ and his kingdom can be strangled in its embryonic form in the nation of Israel and Judah, so much the better in Satan's mind. And so that Satan, having failed to stop Hezekiah's reformation internally, what is he doing now? He's threatening to assault it from without. Satan has failed to get Judah to succumb to the idolatry that Satan successfully got Israel to succumb to in the ten northern tribes. So now what does Satan try to do? Satan tries then to oppress the church from the outside. And this sometimes happens. If, if Satan will try first to get the church to capitulate in doctrine and life, but if, if, the, if the church resists, then Satan may try to persecute the church from the outside. So we need to keep in mind as we pray for reformation and revival, and I hope you are doing that, and, and we see reasons for encouragement today. We have growing seminaries, faithful seminaries that are growing. We have more and more men being put under candidacy for licensure and ordination. We continue to see new churches being planted, particularly in our presbytery. We may find eventually, if these reforms continue, that we may get external pressure from the culture. You need to be aware of that. Many of our brothers and sisters in China feel that external pressure right now. We've been praying for Pastor Wang Yi um, of er, uh, Covenant, er, Early Rain Covenant Church who has been arrested, for example, and placed in jail. Our, our missionaries have essentially been expelled from China. Their visas were not renewed and, and they had to leave. And so uh, the present communist regime in China under President Xi is doing what? He's bringing external pressure upon our brothers and sisters in the church. The church has been growing like wildfire in China. And a, a lot of good things have been happening, and there's a hunger and a thirst for Christ in China. Um, even in our own denomination, we have men that are, are committed to the translation of the best reformed literature into the Chinese language for them. But at, at the same time, while these good things, these reforms are taking place, we see that the Communist Party in China 
uh, is putting pressure. And I think it may grow worse. I'm not a prophet and I'm not the son of a prophet, but all of you saw, no doubt, on your television or you read it about it in the news, you know, you, what President Xi just did to, uh, you know, the, the former communist uh, leader and, and publicly humiliating uh, Jintao. Uh, Hu Jintao was the former, and he, he, you know, escorts him out of the Congress in front of everybody. I mean, this is right out of Stalin's playbook. So you, you need to keep in mind, we are dealing with some very hostile powers and forces uh, right now in the world, and, and many of our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ are, are facing uh, that pressure as we speak this Lord's Day. So the tension builds for Hezekiah. Shalmaneser invades Israel. There's a siege of Samaria, and there's the overthrow of Samaria, and we know that the people in Israel are sent into exile here. Now, um, let me say a few things also. Number one, obedience is not optional for the people of God. The disobedience of Israel led to their exile. And I think it's safe to say the obedience of Hezekiah led to their at least temporary preservation. Uh, now, in, in, for those of you who want to know, you know, Judah will fall, obviously, later in history. In 722 B.C., Israel falls to Assyria. You've got to keep these two dates in mind, 722 B.C., 586 B.C. And remember, when you're B.C., the clock is going down. You're counting down, right? So 722 is farther away than 586 because you're going to zero first, right? And then once you hit AD, the time of Christ, you're going up to 2023 here. So in 722, the people of God are taken into exile by the Assyrians. That same thing essentially will happen in 586, and you do the math, 130-some years later. Uh, the same thing's going to happen to Judah and Jerusalem by the Babylonians. But, it, but what, what was the cause? It was the disobedience of the people of God. There are a lot of Christians today who make the mistake that obedience is an option, that, that faith and obedience are not two sides of the same coin. They say that you can have faith but you don't have to have obedience. And James makes it clear to us, even as Paul emphasized that we are saved by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, James tells us, what is the content of that faith? What does that faith look like in our lives? That faith produces works. And with there, if there are no works, then it is not a true saving faith. The problem is, is that uh, too many churches are leaving the impression in the minds of their own people, that it is that they are secure with a faith that does not produce fruit. Because they said a prayer, they signed a card, they walked an aisle, and therefore they're eternally secure. Forget it. If your limb in Jesus Christ is not producing fruit, it's cut off and it will be thrown into the fire. Because it shows that it really was not truly united to Christ. Saving faith will produce fruit. You should be able to see it. Now, admittedly, there are difficulties with this because our faith is not a perfect faith. And so we will see some imperfect fruit. Uh, we will see, like a toddler, 
They're learning to walk. Uh, new Christians may stumble, and they may stumble badly in the early years of their walk with Christ. You know, they come to Christ, and they, they have, they're full of faith and zeal and for Christ, but there's too much confidence in themselves. And God providentially allows them to see that their confidence is too much in themselves and not enough in Jesus Christ, and they fall into sin, and then they begin to wonder, am I really a Christian at all? Um, and, and so these things can be complicated, but make no mistake about it, there must be fruit. Uh, if, if there is true faith, obedience does matter. It matters today. We see the churches that are warned by the Lord Jesus Christ if they don't produce fruit. Uh, in, 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 you know, with, with faith in Christ and repentance. Ephesus, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis were all named by the Lord Jesus Christ as churches that needed to reform their ways. We need to listen to the word of God, but as Jason Thoman said last week, we must be doers of the word of God as well. And so we have to ask ourselves, are there any areas of disobedience in our life, in our personal life today? Are, are, you know, I went through last night just, you know, examining myself, and I, I said, what do, what do I need to improve on in 2023? What, what, are, the, what are the things, and I, and I had a piece of paper, I love blank pieces of paper and pen, it's so full of promise, <laughs> and, and, and wrote those things out. I need to work more on intercessory prayer. Um, I need to work more on my Greek and Hebrew. Uh, I need to, you know, and I, I went through and I said, I need to improve in these areas as a Christian, as a pastor. Um, and, and I think the scripture says we are all to examine ourselves and see, test ourselves, see if we be in the faith, ways that I can improve uh, my obedience to Jesus Christ, that Christ would be more pleased uh, with me. We have to ask ourselves, do we have any other gods in our life that are hindering our faithfulness to God, our obedience to God? You know, the Sabbath day, I think, is a great litmus test, isn't it, to see if you got an idol in your life? Because I think many times that idol will be tested, or will test you on the Sabbath. And do you love God, or do you love the idol? And it'll show up in whether you're willing to break the Sabbath and that's true of all the commandments. All right? If you're willing to steal or if you're willing to lie for the idol, then you have an idol in, in your life that needs to be dealt with. Do you have any other gods in your life? Do you keep the Lord's Day as a Sabbath rest? Some of you aren't being faithful to your vow. You, you promised God right up here in the front that you, you, that you would support the work of this church, and you're, you're here about 33% of the time these doors are open. You need to think about that. What does it mean to support the work of the church? You promised God, all of us did, that we would support the work of the church. Do you honor authority? Do you refrain from murder and anger? Do you seek to avoid sexual immorality with your eyes, with your mind? Uh, do you work as you're commanded to work? The Bible says, do not steal, but what? Work with your hands. Work. Are you cheating your employer? Do you need to be more thankful, not covet, not murmur, not grumble or complain? I think the disobedience of the mainline church <clears throat> in much of the 20th century, even now in evangelical circles, 
is leading to a cultural captivity of the church. The church is being led away into our own Babylonian exile. Why has the country gone the way it's gone over the last hundred years? Why do we find ourselves longing for other days? Well, it, 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 I think in many ways it's because of our disobedience as a church. And that when the salt is no longer salty, it's good for nothing but to be trampled upon by men trampled upon by the culture. The culture comes into the church, and then once the culture's got a hold of the church, the church is brought into this cultural captivity. Many of our young people are brought into Assyrian and Babylonian captivity. Now, God can renew his covenant even in captivity. We learned that in the Old Testament. And so all is not lost. But we need to think about that. Well, that was only the first point of this sermon, and I apologize. Um, I need to stop here, and uh, we're running out of time. We do need to uh, observe the Lord's table in a, in a reverent manner. So let's pray together, and then we'll come to the table. Oh, Lord, uh, we thank you for the word, and we thank you for the history. We thank you for the inspiration of the Spirit to record these things for our instruction. Uh, that these things are written for us, that we might learn from them, that we might walk in the ways of Jesus Christ. We thank you for Jesus, our great King. We thank you that he is even greater than Hezekiah, far greater. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for his obedience. We thank you that because of his obedience, we are part of the fruit of his own life and ministry. And uh, we pray, Lord, we'd show ourselves to be good fruit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.